This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. I think that uh, every country has uh, a right to define their destiny by themselves, their aspirations, either it is European Union aspirations or Euro-Atlantic aspirations. And we're responsible for European security in our neighborhood, at least, and we stand for the world security in general. We feature thought leaders at all career levels, where we explore, among other things, the many contributions that women make to the fields of international business, national security, foreign policy, and international development. Does having women in positions of power influence the outcomes of decisions in these fields? Why or why not? Join me, Dr. Kathleen McInnes, director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies for these incredible conversations. The Smart Women Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon. We are joined today by Galina Mahaluk and Sevgil Musayeva. Galina is a member of the Ukrainian parliament from the Servant of the People Party and a Ukrainian delegate to the NATO Parliamentary Assembly. Sevgil is editor-in-chief of Ukraine's Pravda, which is Ukraine's largest online newspaper. Welcome to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast. We really appreciate the time you're taking out of your extremely busy schedule during your visit to Washington to talk to us about the situation in Ukraine. These days, houses and businesses in every town are flying Ukrainian flags, and I know so many organizations that are holding fundraisers to support Ukraine, so I know that a huge number of people are very interested in your views and in learning about your experiences. Before we get started, I do want to emphasize to our listeners that this is a discussion about an ongoing war. And so there are discussions in this conversation that are a bit difficult because we are talking about war crimes and humanitarian catastrophes. Let's get started. If we could start our conversation with the run-up to the war, could you walk us through your experience of the Russian buildup of forces on Ukraine's border? Did you think that Russia would invade Ukraine? Well, I think that average Ukrainian citizens, they would never thought that this reality can knock at our door. The first three weeks of uh, the full-scale invasion in Ukraine, well, I realized that it's happening, yeah, because it was my life, but I could not understand how, why. In 21st century, in the middle of Europe, because geographically the center of Europe is located in Ukraine, it's possible just to invade other country, to come and destroy houses, rape women, kids, uh, Two months, baby was even raped. How it's possible in current world to do it without any kind of consequences for the country, just do whatever they want. And the thing is, I think that the first three weeks, the rest of the world was shocked maybe, or they didn't expect it. And it took some time to understand and to see the photos of Bucha and been to happen. So I think that... It could be prevented, maybe, if the reaction was into back 2014 different, but not the way it was more or less silent or something, you know? So the lackluster response, in your view, to the 2014 yeah. annexation, invasion of Crimea, led to the present circumstances we're seeing now? Actually, a Georgian colleagues uh, told that back to 2008, when mm. uh, there was the first time it was an invasion to Georgia, they told that the Ukraine is next. Or say that uh, Russians, they behave like uh, hooligans uh, in that area. So uh, they do whatever they want with the smaller countries, with the neighbors, without any kind of responsibility. Because 
they were allowed to do it once, mm-hmm. twice, and this is already the second invasion into Ukraine. So they thought, okay, the reaction in 2014 was uh, comfortable for Russians. I mean, there was minimum reaction. Why not to invade the whole country if we could do it with three oblasts, with three regions? There is a argument that is widely circulated or discussed in at least Washington policy circles that NATO's expansion is what led to this conflict. What are your views on that premise? Well, as you've mentioned, I'm also representative of Ukrainian parliament to NATO parliamentary assembly. I think that uh, every country has uh, a right to define their destiny by themselves, their aspirations, either it is European Union aspirations or Euro-Atlantic aspirations. And this should be not the case where the third country, Russia, decide that if we allow Ukraine to join European Union or not, if we allow to join NATO or not. That's why yeah, this is also Russian propaganda, this brainwashing mm-hmm. that Russians thought that if Ukraine will uh, join NATO, but you know, we're, we're not even the candidate. So it's like we are on our way. We do reforms regularly. We develop our legislation towards NATO standards. And I think that our army has already shown that we are worse to be a candidate or even a member to NATO, that our army, they are smart, brave. And they really, nowadays, uh, we're responsible for European security in our neighborhood, at least. And we stand for the world security in general. So if we could return back to the outbreak of the war and the invasion, could you tell our listeners what your experience was on the day of the invasion? Mm -hmm. Uh, Hello. Yes, I will start with... Describing so for me personally, because I am Crimean Tatar and I live in Crimea before the war, it was a question when Russia decided to start her large scale invasion. So it was a question that I uh, already live in this situation for the last eight years. So, what Russia did in Crimea, how they captured people, how they built military base in Crimea for some reason. And of course, we were thinking that probably it will be a big challenge for the Syrian region, but it became a big challenge for Ukraine mm. because a lot of missiles and uh, by Russia still um, it's from Crimean t- territory unfortunately from my homeland and as uh, media as a chief editor of course I was ready for this invasion but uh, of course I mm, so you weren't surprised I wasn't surprised but at the same time I don't want to believe that so it's kind of you know mm-hmm. um, maybe right. maybe you have one chance just to avoid it and you believe in this last chance but Months before the war, we started our kind of security plan, implementing our security plan. We divided our team in two different plans. One will stay in Kiev for our mm-hmm. plan. Another one will move to uh, Carpentian Mountains, to the western part of the country, just to work from this place, because probably we will have a problem with connection or blackout. It's it's possible situation. I decided to stay in Kiev. It was my personal statement, kind of. <laughs> but then, on 21st of uh, February, actually, I woke up this morning to 4.30. It's a normal situation for me because I'm chief editor and I have to check well, news all the time. So I woke up uh, 30 minutes before uh, Putin declared the war for Ukraine and even uh, watch his statement, his uh, announcement of this war operation and sent uh, this link for my night editor just to <laughs> create this kind of news story. And I do remember it. And also, I received the first call from my colleague, Miroslava Gangadze. She is the head of Voice of America here in Washington. And she was, why are you sitting in your pyjama? You have to leave because you're on the list of these people who will be targeted by Russians if they, if they will occupy Kiev. 
of course, I say, okay, please don't be nervous. I'm absolutely okay. But then five hours after, I received a call from one of the diplomats and he explained me a real situation, a real threat, that you're 100% sure that you're on this list of targeted people. And maybe if uh, Russia will occupy, will come to Kiev in 48 hours, they will capture all famous people, all journalists, all civil activists. Uh, so you have to leave as soon as possible. And I started to cry because, you know, I wasn't prepared for such situation. And I pick up my dress. This, and yep. it was my only one clothes for the next two weeks, actually. And where did you go to? West of Ukraine. We went to mountains, actually, to the mountains. And, um, yeah, walked from this place, actually. So. What happened for you on the first day? Well, actually, I woke up because of explosions. And accidentally, actually, my mom was visiting me because she needed to visit the doctor in Kiev. So she was in my apartment uh, that day. And she came and clarified if it's true that she hear these strange explosions. I text my colleagues in peace what's going on. And we realized that in different areas of Kiev, we hear the same strange sounds mm -hmm. that cannot be compared to any other kind of explosions that we heard before. And then we had taken the decision that uh, we need immediately to go to the parliament because it was our prior plan, let's say, in case something happens yeah. today, tomorrow, or just in case something happens, we need immediately to be ready to vote important decisions like martial law, etc. So our instruction was just go ahead uh, to the parliament. Mm -hmm. And then around uh, half past 5 a.m. I was already in the parliament with my mom. I had to take her with me. Because mm -hmm. how can I leave her home in this unprecedented situation? Mm -hmm. Half past 7 a.m. we already voted for martial law. I stayed in the parliament till 2 a.m. the date because we were supposed to have another session of the parliament after consultation with the president about mobilization and some other important sudden decisions that were supposed to be taken. That's why all the MPs, they were in Kiev. Let's say we, we didn't plan to leave Ukraine. There was um, no even a thought in mind. We are civil servants. We were elected directly by citizens, so we had to serve our state. Of course, we knew that we were also the target presidential faction, MPs. So if they could remove us, then easily they could say that put our people on board and we control now the state. So we realized also that they know everything about our families. They know all the members over there of the families, where they work, live, how many of them. They felt responsibility for my family because of me, they are also under risk. So I understood that I cannot be back home because they know my address. They also cannot be back home because my parents, they live in Odessa. And we realized that, of course, Odessa will be one of the first targets because it's their dream to cut Ukraine from the south. And they think that Odessa is kind of a piece of cake for them, cherry on the top of it. Right. That's extraordinary to think of how you have to put your family into height. It's not just you and having your continuity of government plan, but also how do you protect your families in these circumstances? Turning to the current situation, this is the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. So I'd like to start us off talking a little bit, if it's okay, about the role that women are playing in Ukraine in this conflict. As women, we often have different vantage points and roles within our societies. In your view, what unique roles are women playing in this conflict? Do you think that you see this conflict a little bit differently than your male counterparts? 
Uh, you know, everybody works in Ukraine for the victory yeah. and uh, women as well. And uh, even trying to survive uh, together with their children in different countries is also kind of about bravery and mm -hmm. about courage. Because, for example, my female friends left country and they're crying all the time because they have to stay with their children mm -hmm. just to take care of them. But they help a lot with humanitarian aid, with uh, volunteering from their country, well, from country they mm -hmm. are. Of course, we have a lot of women among militaries. We have a lot of women among volunteers. For example, even two days ago, we met here with our women battalion. One of girls, for example, she organized the best humanitarian aid in Poland, so the biggest one. And they already received 700,000 uh, tons of humanitarian aid from different countries. And she helps for Ukrainian embassy to make it successful to protect from all these kind of uh, challenges. It is hard. So we don't have food uh, in some of um, deoccupied uh, cities, for example. And uh, people face with a lot of real hunger even. So humanitarian aid is important. And so we have a lot of MPs, for example, and you know that we have a martial law and that's why men can travel, they can right. leave uh, the country. So, uh, women, so, so became, women became and representative mm -hmm. of, yeah. uh, of our voice and a lot of MPs, uh, women came to the, with delegations. So I also want to mention, for example, wives and daughters and mothers of soldiers, for example, first of all, captured in Azovstal steel plant. They organized a real campaign uh, just to do our possible to free those soldiers uh, and the, some of them went for example to Pope Francis and asked for help, asked for assistance they organized press conferences so the female voice is so strong during this conflict and during these challenging times and I saw during the last three months already like more, almost three months this war a, a lot of a lot of strong women and you know some of them already became widows and unfortunately my sister she lives here in the United States but my colleague and her partner, Brent Renault, who is an American citizen and who is a journalist of time, and he came to Ukraine just to cover our war and the refugee crisis. He was killed by Russian soldiers uh -huh. near Irpine. And of course, it's affected. So, and a lot of women together with these kids. And, you know, I crossed the border already. It's my first time when I crossed the border. And all the time, it made me cry when I saw these women with kids, with belongings, with dogs, with cats. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. That's a segue to talk about the humanitarian situation in Ukraine right now. Could you walk our listeners through what, what are some of the key contours of the humanitarian catastrophe that you're seeing right now? Well, the reality in Ukraine is dramatic. With the help of missiles, they destroyed infrastructure objects and they also destroyed a number of food storages to have hunger. Uh, unfortunately, occupied. So, so deliberate targeting of yes. food storage locations. Yes. Food storage locations, fuel storage locations. We don't have petrol now in Ukraine. Okay. At all. Just no petrol. No petrol. No petrol. No. So, like, do you go to the parliamentary session? Mm -hmm. I'm asking my colleagues, like, how come I can cross 500 kilometers from Odessa to Kiev? And we just uh, joke that soon we will have to drive forces or just walk couple of days walk towards Kiev. So that was their target. And I should say that unfortunately, around 2 million of people, they don't have access to drinking water. And when it was still February and March, people on the occupied territory, they used to melt snow just to have or drink water from the toilets. Sorry, but it's reality. 
mean, those areas that were liberated actually after uh, the occupation. We saw how people, they, when they were going out of these bombshells uh, where they stayed a couple of weeks, how they were drinking water from the puddles. We have kids dying every day from dehydration in the 21st century because on the occupied territories, uh, Russian behaves like evils. They do not give any opportunity for Ukrainian side to provide uh, food, uh, water, some medical you know, assistance. They just do not let us go inside and to, ha- to have any kind of you know, corridor, for example, for Azovstal. It's one of the examples, unfortunately, because they didn't have any kind of medical supplies. They even had to cut parts of the bodies just to prevent sp- spreading of hangrenos and etc. So the humanitarian catastrophe that uh, Ukraine is facing with is really dramatic. And we do our best uh, with the help of international partners and thanks a lot for providing this assistance to Ukraine. We've managed to survive within this three almost months. But the issue is that you might have seen the stories about Bucha, Irpin, and those towns in Kiev Oblast that were occupied. But we have much worse situation, like in Mariupol, where as of March, the situation was that there were a lot of corpses and dead bodies lying on the streets, and no one could just move them away, because if civilian will try to do it, he or she will be killed. Russians didn't care about this. And dogs started to eat these people because animals, they were also hungry. And of course, no one was feeding it. And the risk is when, when dogs start to do it, they get used to the smell so they can attack any live person. So it's kind of line of uh, consequences. You could not even imagine that this can be true in 2020. Right. It's astonishing. Yes. It's a hellscape. Yes. And this is in the middle of Europe, in the well-developed country. Mm-hmm. So that's why they use that when Kiev areas was deoccupied. Russians, they changed their tactic. They wanted to mask their behavior in occupied territory. So they brought mobile crematoriums just to burn those people, just to hide the number of victims. But we estimate that it's around 20,000 of civilians killed only in one town, Mariupol, only in one. So we talk about other towns or cities, hundreds of thousand might be number of killed civilians and what we see from the air from the space that we have they're buried all together and we have hundreds and hundreds of this kind of mass graves and every day we support more and more places where these mass graves they were uh, you know created by russians could you tell us about filtration camps mm-hmm. what are they what's happening Yeah, thank you. We have uh, some filtration camps in occupied territories already. And what is the filtration procedure that you need to be prepared that you will be absolutely searched by military guys? So this is Russian military searching? Yes, Russian military guys search you and they want you just to uh, show all your tattoos, for example, all your legs. They also trying to find any information in open sources about yourself. And uh, last week I received a message from Azovstal Steel Plant, one of the military, and he described uh, the situation that uh, it was an evocation of civilians, and among these civilians was a military nurse with her four years old kid, young girl. And unfortunately, her mother was captured in this military filtration camp, 
because she was a kind of a military assistant, a military nurse in Azov's, Azov uh, battalion, and probably so she has a connection in their minds with uh, Nashists. And they captured her in this filtration camp, and her kid, her four years daughter, came to Zaporizhia, to Ukrainian-controlled territory, by herself, without any older She just walked into, back into Ukrainian territory. Yes, she was she was in a bus together with different people from this other okay. style still plant, but she was absolutely alone without her mother and his father. He asked these military guys from Azovstal still plant, asked me to find this girl just because we don't have any information. And of course, I found her. So she is now an Ukrainian family, but she was separated with her mother. Mm-hmm. And she is four years old. And she already spent almost two months in this shelter in Azovstal steel plant after bombing all the time. All mm-hmm. kind of every single hour situation is very, very difficult here. So without water, without food, kind of normal food, normal. Mm-hmm. So it's insane. So for our listeners, the filtration camps, as I understand them, are where Ukrainians are taken by Russians. Yes, they taken and captured, and more than one million people already, for our information, captured on these filtration camps in occupied territories. So it's kind of people for whom Russians have a questions about kind of their political use, mm-hmm. their activism, maybe. Usually it's active people who took part in different uh, civil organizations or civil society, civil society mm-hmm. uh, of course, militaries. They get flagged and, and their children, are they Yes, they're sep- are separated usually yeah. and they have a permit to leave this territory, to go to Ukrainian controlled territory. And the second one is deportation. We already have 200,000 children forcibly deported to Russia. And around 1 million people already deported to Russia as well from Ukrainian cities, for example, Mariupol or Donetsk region or those uh, big cities in Donetsk and Lugansk region, which already kind of became a battle, became a battlefield of Ukrainian-Russian war. It's a kind of Stalinist population relocation. I can imagine, you know. I'm Crimean Tatar, and uh, my uh, nation was deported uh, by Stalin order in Mm -hmm. 1944. And uh, there were like 300,000 people. And it's affected us for three generations. So we are still victims of this uh, war crime. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine how it will affect for one million people who were forcibly deported to Russia without money, without job, without belongings, just to survive. Russian online media, Medusa published an article about that these deported people that were firstly deported like in Vladivostok, which is kind of wow. far, far, that far is, away. That is as far, yeah, far, the far, other far side. away. Yeah. They don't have a job. They don't have a money. So Russia promises a lot, but uh, they don't have any option f- just to leave. So Russians promise some kind of food and humanitarian aid and it ends it. Particularly in your capacity as editor-in-chief of Ukrainian Pravda, one of the things that we've observed is that Russian media narratives about this war are profoundly different Mm -hmm. than the narratives we're seeing here in the United States and in Ukraine. And do you have any thoughts on how that information bubble Mm -hmm. around Russia can be penetrated? Is there anything that can be done? Oh my God, this is so difficult question. If I will have an answer, probably we will win this war like oh, next day, uh, uh, tomorrow. Yeah. Of course, so Russian propaganda fuels this war so much. Of course, Russian propaganda um, kills people in Ukraine right now. I think that it's a big, big challenge, not only for Ukraine, but for the whole of the world. Uh, so kind of Russian disinformation 
But unfortunately, my answer is sad because because of they live in these uh, conditions of propaganda already for the last eight years. And for example, Russian independent journalism was destroyed in Russia for the last 22 years after kind of they, they destroyed it totally. So if, for example, compared to Ukraine, we're uh, growing uh, this independent media and it helped us now so much. It's quite different from what, what is going on now in Russia. So we have a state propaganda and that's why we have 73% of people who support Putin mm-hmm. in his war, in his decisions of this war and war operation. And still people, because Russian propaganda pictured all Ukrainians for the last eight years as a nazist, as a fascist, mm-hmm. uh, as a American puppets, it gave a less license for military guys to kill us. It gave uh, dehumanizes uh, yes, dehumanizes uh, mm-hmm. our people, and uh, this is sad. And I hope that well, if I will have a hybrid tribunal uh, tomorrow or someday, I hope so. And I think that we should definitely think about this now. I hope that one day all Russian propagandists will be <laughs> also prosecuted what they did mm-hmm. for the last eight more even years just to fuel this war. Information war has battlefield consequences. Yes, and then you know that everyone watched this video from Butch, everyone saw these terrible photos, and today Dmitry mm-hmm. Peskov went to the press conference and uh, repeated his narrative about that it was fake, which mm-hmm. was produced by Western because uh, Ukraine wasn't so master in creating such, such fakes. Mm-hmm. But the truth is that I lost two of my friends in Bucha and Derpeny. One of the questions that I think is on a lot of people's minds and I'm very interested in your views on this, what does the termination of the war look like to you? It does seem that there's pretty irreconcilable ideas of victory on the Russian and Ukrainian sides. And so my question is, how do you see this war ending? And do you see any trade space in these negotiations? Well, definitely the end of war will be when all Ukrainian territories will be occupied, including mm-hmm. Donetsk, Lugansk area and Crimea. That will be finished. But we realize that the war cannot be just stopped because Russia, they will gather their forces and they will have the third invasion to Ukraine. Yeah, they like will regroup. Th- they'll, use, they'll use the pause to regroup and prosecute another phase of the war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So definitely, well, the opinion of the president is that uh, what kind of negotiations could be on the territories? We are a sovereign nation. And definitely we think about what will be done after the victory already. Mm-hmm. You know, we have developed the working groups that consist of both MPs, members of the parliament, uh, representatives of the office of the president, experts in the field in different areas, finances, infrastructure, human rights, uh, in order to start develop plans on reconstruction already now, so mm-hmm. that to be ready to have the, the future prospectus. Mm-hmm. But uh, we realize that every day of work costs us a lot and brings new deaths, mm-hmm. unfortunately, and new damages of civilian infrastructure. But they destroy bridges. I think that already now more than 250,000 Ukrainians have lost their houses. So they don't have where to be back because it was just destroyed. Yeah. In Kiev region, in Kharkiv region, in Odessa region, all over, all over, especially on eastern territories. So we need to think about where immediately to bring these people uh, to new governmental residences, etc. But what to do? That's why here yeah, a lot should be done. We realize that we should transform our way of life 
and maybe to become a new Israel, I should say, mm. like, you know, to be ready to have militaries, at least uh, within the first period, like to have military presence at schools, universities, shopping malls, because, you know, these kind of special groups of Russian people are sent everywhere just to make this kind right. of... Like the, the little green men yes. thing that we saw. Yes, yes. So we need to change uh, the way of our life completely and to be ready for the new attack, always to be, you know, 24-7. But of course, uh, that will be done after victory. Now, the main our priority is victory for Ukraine. Recapturing the territory. Yeah. yeah. What, in your view, is the most important thing or things the international community can do to help? To be able to cope with the second army in the world, we really need weapons, heavy mm -hmm. weapons. Because basically what they do is that uh, they send missiles from Caspi region, which is like more than 2,000 kilometers away, and they do it simultaneously. Like Ukraine won Eurovision contest. Mm -hmm. You know what happened just in a couple of, even not hours, but minutes after that? Missiles all over Ukraine. Land lease, after it was signed, what happened? Again, missiles. So this is the Russians. They show that they are not happy with something, which is, you know, how is that possible, you know? We realize that we have open sky, unfortunately. So the sky is not close, and we know that we have a huge territory. So geographically, with Crimea, Ukraine is the biggest in, in Europe. Without Crimea, then France is uh, the biggest. Of course, we will spend more and more for defense, for modernizing it. But indeed, uh, we need more than weapons. We are grateful, of course, for any kind of weapons, but it's better to have those ones who will uh, destroy the target on a couple of hundred kilometers than on 20 or 30 kilometers. Okay, so longer range. Longer range. Okay. Of course, we need uh, sanctions to continue to hit Russian economy. Oil embargo is also important because every day Russia gets payments without any kind of delay, and they use this money to build tanks that... Uh, tomorrow will come and, uh, you know, kill Ukrainian civilians. They use all financial benefits they have now from trade all over the world for ammunition for the Russian army to invade Ukraine. Also, it is highly important for us to switch off SWIFT for, for Russian banks. So only seven Russian banks were, were cut off for this uh, system. And it is highly important to completely isolate Russia from the possibility to have this banking transfers. We ask for our international partners to support us and help us with exclusion of Russia from international organizations like UN Security Council. When they have veto right, they block mm -hmm. all important decisions that could help Ukraine. This is also in terms of different financial international organizations. They just because the successor after the Soviet Union, but it's not only Russia, Ukraine has, you know. Mm -hmm. So that's why we can talk about it is fair if it's legal that they just inherited all the position that Soviet Union had uh, before 1991. Of course, I should say that it is highly important also for Ukrainians that the U.S. and all other countries would recognize Russia as a state sponsor of terrorism. Some European states, like Baltic countries, they already adopted this decision and recognized Russia mm -hmm. as a sponsor of terrorism. Why it is important for Ukrainians? Because it has then economic consequences for those ones who, who trade with the sponsors of terrorism. So basically, that's why all the steps, they could actually help to deteriorate Russian economy. 
as soon as possible because unfortunately this year forecast a 45% of drop in Ukrainian GDP and for Russia it's only 11%. So to compare mm-hmm. 45% is like a minimum mm-hmm. consequence of this 83 days of full-scale invasion. That's why a lot, as you see, can be done for international community. And indeed, I would like once more to highlight that we are very much grateful for any kind of international assistance. And only together we can survive only with international support. So thank you a lot. Well, thank you so much for joining us today for a fascinating and profound and important conversation. So we're very grateful for your time and best of luck in the rest of your visit to the United States. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, or you can follow me on Twitter at KJ McInnes One. Thanks for listening and join us next time. The Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon.